Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Well, we've gone through a national trauma, not just for the last year, but for several years as a result of this pandemic. And it's reflected in so many different ways, not just inflation, but, you know, mental health, uh, you know, suicides and drug uh, overdoses, violence, uh, you know, not just on the streets, but in, in, in homes. Uh, you know, there, there's just so many reflections of, of the ramifications of this, uh, of this virus. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is my old friend, David Axelrod, former Obama presidential advisor, political strategist extraordinaire, CNN commentator, now serving as director and co-founder of the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics. David, thanks so much for joining us. Fran, always good to be with you. You you missed the most important title, former City Hall reporter for the Chicago Tribune, which is uh, how we know each other. That, that's true. We know each other for more than 40 years. I hate to admit that. <laughs> you are now stepping back from the Institute of Politics you founded at your alma mater. Why yes. is that? Is this a semi-retirement of sorts? Surely you're not clearing your <laughs> schedule to 10 more Cub games at Wrigley. We don't even know if there's going to be a baseball season. Well, we, yes. I mean, I, I do hope to get some more games in, but beyond, but that's not really my motivation. I Listen, I'm so proud of what we've created at the University of Chicago. It has become uh, the Institute of Politics in 10 years since its founding has become uh, part of the fabric of life on this campus. And it's inspired thousands of young people to be uh, engaged citizens and leaders. Um, you know, they're doing amazing things out there. Some of the young people who pass through uh, our program. But uh, I knew when I started it, and this is based in part on my observation of uh, people in public life, uh, that 10 years is a long time. And 10 years is about as long as someone should run anything, in my view. Uh, I think no matter how committed you are, no matter how creative you are, um, uh, after 10 years, you know, you're doing things a little bit by rote. Uh, the people around you are a little too responsive to what you want and are not challenging you as much. Uh, and, you know, that's why the later terms of mayors, uh, for example, are not as uh, productive as the first terms. And so I just had a commitment to myself that I would step away after 10 years, and I'm going to stay on as chairman of the board of advisors of the IOP. I'll be a senior fellow. I'll do events there. But it's time to let someone else uh, bring their energy and ideas to the leadership of the IOP. And I'm excited to uh, be leading the search to find that person. And what will you do with your time when you do find that person? Well, I'm still going to be involved with the IOP. I still am, uh, have my commitments to uh, to CNN, to my podcasts. Um, I hope to do a little more writing. 
uh, then uh, I've had time to do perhaps some documentary work. And yes, I want to spend more time, not just at the ballpark, but with my, my family, uh, who uh, I uh, am told are very nice people. And uh, I would love to get to know them better. Uh, no, I, uh, I stole that joke from John Stewart, by the way. But um, I, uh, you know, I have plenty, I have plenty to do. And I'm, you know, I'm very comfortable with the decision that I made. It's not a joke. I've learned that how life is so precious. You never know. Uh, yes. So so take advantage of what time you get. Russia's invasion of the Ukraine is underway. It is worse than we even feared. What are your thoughts on the aggression that we're seeing and how the United States should respond? Are economic sanctions, even strong ones, going to be enough? Or will the United States need to get involved militarily? And if so, would the American public tolerate it, particularly that portion of the country that really supported former President Donald Trump's America First philosophy? Yeah, Fran, uh, first of all, you say it's worse than we thought, but it actually is what uh, President Biden had forecast. It's what American intelligence had forecast, um, you know, for for days, uh, really weeks. Uh, the president has been cautioning that uh, Putin's intentions might be much larger than just those eastern provinces of Ukraine, but maybe to uh, subjugate the whole country and begin to, you know, as part of a recreation of the old Soviet um, uh, sphere of influence. And that's what we're seeing right now. And it's heartbreaking. You know, my my father uh, fled uh, w from what is now part of Ukraine um, in the in the last century. Uh, and, um, you know, we thought we left some we that we left this these kinds of chapters in, in history, but we obviously have not. In terms of what America should do, can do, I do think that withering economic sanctions can have uh, an impact, but um, even those are gonna require the president to rally the public. Uh, people need to understand this is not just about some e e uh, you know ephemeral concept of, uh, or ethereal concept of, uh, uh, you know, values and that we have to stand up for democratic values. We should, we should identify with those people I saw on television this morning huddled in a metro station in, in Ukraine, uh, wondering what their future will hold. Uh, this was now a makeshift bomb shelter. We should identify with those people as freedom loving people. But beyond that, it's, we, history tells us it's not in our interest it's not in our security interest to allow uh, this kind of aggression because it becomes uh, a, uh, you know, we, we've experienced a, a pandemic. There, there is a reverberative effect of this. It becomes a virus uh, that affects global security. And that ultimately is our problem. So I don't know that the American people would uh, support um you know, us getting, I know they won't support us getting militarily involved in Ukraine. They, they should support us firming up uh, NATO to send a strong message to Putin uh, that uh, he, you know, this can't go on and it can't cross more borders. Uh, but even the economic sanctions are going to require the president to sell this uh, to the American people. They need to understand that these sacrifices 
are important to our interests and not just our value. What do you think the end game is for Vladimir Putin? Will he stop at overthrowing the democratically elected government of Ukraine and installing a puppet government? Or do you think, as you referred to before, that this is kind of a first step into something bigger, perhaps reclaiming and putting together the old pieces of the Soviet Union? Yeah, well, we really don't know. We know that Putin and he, you know, in these uh, harangues and rants that he's uh, he's he's made to the Russian people over the last few days, you know, he's exposed what uh, is in his core, and that is a belief that uh, the uh, the dismantlement of the Soviet uh, Empire, the old Russian Empire, uh, was a tragedy, uh, and. Uh, you know, that is something that he, he believes deeply. I don't know what his, no one really knows what his ultimate intentions are, but that's the reason to uh, firm up uh, our, um, you know, our NATO allies in the area and make sure that uh, a very firm line is drawn uh, there. And I'm sure we'll hear that from the president. What role do you think China will play in all this? I mean, it was chilling to me to see Putin and the Chinese president together at the Olympics, before the Olympics. Uh, These are our two mortal enemies seemingly having a cozier relationship. That's frightening. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's there are several aspects to this. One is. does it it doesn't embolden uh, President Xi to see um, Putin uh, move in and 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 uh, work his will in Ukraine as 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 Xi is, is eyeing Taiwan, uh, which he believes uh, really is part of 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 China and uh, should be under China China's influence. We saw what happened in Hong Kong, uh, but he also has the capacity to help. Russia withstand uh, some of the impact of these economic sanctions, and um, you know that that is a uh, that is a concern. So uh, you know there are all kinds of impacts uh, of this, and um, that's why America needs to be concerned. I think it's a huge political problem for President Biden because. We're already feeling the effects of inflation that uh, are related to the pandemic. And now on top of this, you know, we're going to see gas prices go up perhaps as much as uh, 50 cents uh, on the gallon uh, and other items uh, go up in cost. So this will add to that inflationary spiral. And that's a big political problem for the president. I think it's important in his he's speaking uh uh, on Thursday today, I don't know when people will hear our conversation, but it's important for the president to continue now and in his State of the Union speech on Monday uh, to talk, to tell people why this is so important uh, because they're going to feel the pain, and uh, generally presidents are the ones who bear the brunt of that. He needs to, as Churchill did in Britain, explain to people. Uh, why that sacrifice is necessary. We're already seeing it at the pump, as you said, and in the stock market. Inflation was already squeezing American wallets. 
If this yes. world crisis squeezes it even more, as you predict, what is the impact likely to be on a very angry electorate already fed up with inflation, pandemic weary, worried about rising crime, headed into the midterm elections? Should incumbents everywhere be running for the hills? Uh, well, I, I think it's, you know, before all of this, um, the prognosis for Democrats in the fall is, is pretty grim. Uh, and, you know, there are several reasons for that. One is just history. History tells us that the incumbent party uh, generally loses ground in a midterm election uh, after the election of a president. And only twice in, since World War II has that not happened. So, uh, in a, you know, we have a, a House of Representatives that's uh, almost uh evenly divided. We have a Senate that is evenly divided. Uh, so, you know, Democrats start off in a, a bad position. The president's approval rating uh, is sitting at 41 percent. Uh, no one but Donald Trump has had worse numbers at this point uh, than, uh, than, than President Biden. That is uh, a concern for all Democrats because if the president's sitting there at 40, 41 percent or worse in November, that really foreshadows a, uh, a, a, a solid, solid Republican year uh, here. So, um, yeah, this so is you not, think both houses go. What's going to happen? Do you think how bad will it be? Especially well, considering I, that this isn't just historic midterm. This is much more than that. Yeah, I mean, uh, the headwinds are very, very strong uh, in in the face of Democrats and. Um, you know, if you were sitting here today and predicting what would happen, you'd say it's going to be a trouncing uh, for Democrats. But the election isn't today. Uh, you know, the hope in the White House, I'm sure, had been that inflation would be uh, somewhat uh reduced by the summer, that people will feel that the virus, which is controlling so much of our national mood, is uh, behind us, and that uh, that would, would would reduce those headwinds. This, um, this in invasion of Ukraine and the steps that are going to be necessary to respond to it is going to complicate that, and it's going to make it harder for the president uh, to get out from under this inflation. Uh, and that's why it's so important, as I said, that people need to know uh, why he has to take the steps he's taking. Uh, and maybe his leadership on this will will in some way uh, redound to his benefit. But look, it's a hard, he's playing a very hard hand here, um, Fran. The president was elected in part because of the virus. Uh, and people's discontent with the way it had been handled by the previous president. There was great hope. He mobilized a big vaccine um, uh, uh, campaign across the country, got a, a couple of hundred million people vaccinated. We are in a better place than we were a year ago, but people don't feel that way. And uh, unless and until they do, uh, you know, the virus is, is going to take its toll on Democrats in the uh, in the fall. So what can he do to play this bad hand as best he can? You know, um, right now, uh, well, well, let me say a couple of things about it. I think uh, how he how he handles this Ukraine issue just from an optics standpoint uh, is important. I think he's done very well so far, given the options. And um, uh, I thought 
you know, they foreshadowed what Putin was going to do. I think they uh, rattled him because the alliance is held together and continues to hold together today. Uh, Biden deserves credit for that. But look, I, I think the the in my short term advice, and I wrote about this um, in a piece in The New York Times a couple of weeks ago, is that uh, Biden needs to be Biden, which is to say he is a guy whose ultimate political strength is empathy and identification with everyday people. Well, we've gone through a national trauma, not just for the last year, but for several years as a result of this pandemic. And it's reflected in so many different ways, not just inflation, but you know, mental health, uh, you know, suicides and drug uh, overdoses, violence, uh, you know, not just on the streets, but in, in, in homes. Uh, you know, there's there just so many reflections of, of the ramifications of this, uh, of this virus. So we've been through hell. He needs to speak to that, not in a Jimmy Carter-esque way, not to talk about malaise, but just to recognize this has been a really hard time. He, uh, one of the things he needs to recognize is that parents have gone through hell uh, with their school-aged children, and there's an awful lot of discontent about how that has uh, unfolded. Um, you know, there are, so he needs to identify with the struggle of the American people. He needs to celebrate the resilience of the American people uh, and uh, resist looking for um, a whole lot of uh, attaboys and pats on the back for the stuff that he's done, which is substantial. Uh, but right now, what's needed is him as the leader of a country that is going through a tumultuous and challenging period. We may be better off than a year ago but we have a long way to go. And he needs to speak to all of that. What about closer to home? The Illinois governor's race, Governor Pritzker was widely praised for his strong and forceful and decisive leadership during the early days and months of the pandemic. But more recently, he's been facing all kinds of pushback on his mask mandates and government by fiat without consulting the General Assembly. Is he in any trouble? Did he push this thing too far? Look, I do think he deserves a lot of credit for um, for following the science and trying to keep people safe uh, and trying to keep our hospital system from being overwhelmed, which really, you know, I know I hear a lot of people say, well, uh, you know, screw the people who don't have vax, who didn't take vaccines. That's their own problem. Let them get sick. I took mine. I'll be fine. The problem with that is some segment of the population won't be fine. Hospitals, and we saw it with the Omicron variant, hospital systems get overwhelmed. And what that means is if uh, if someone has a stroke or a heart attack or some other medical emergency and the emergency and the um, the ICUs are filled and emergency rooms are filled with people who have COVID, uh, people are going to die who you know, who have not, nothing to do with COVID. Uh, so, you know, I think he has been responsible in trying to um, in try, trying to deal with that. It hasn't been politically easy. And I know that there's discontent and there, you know, and I understand that discontent. Uh, that's a political reality. But and he and he will bear some potentially some cost of that. Um, I would say that uh, he is the favorite in this race. I think he is obviously he has the resources that he needs to tell his story and he's been telling it consistently. Uh, but given the nature of the year 
and the fact that he's got uh, you know a, uh, a a billionaire who's willing to spend uh, apparently limitlessly to try and unseat him uh, by supporting a candidate of, of of his drafting and choice. And I'm talking about Ken Griffin. Uh, you know he has to take this seriously, and I'm sure he will. Yeah, as you said, Ken Griffin, the Illinois' richest man, has already pumped $20 million into the gubernatorial campaign of Aurora Mayor Richard Irvin. That's just a down payment. And he says he's all in to defeat Pritzker after succeeding in, in knocking down Pritzker's graduated income tax and dumping a state Supreme Court justice who was running for retention. Irvin at the top of a ticket put together by former political operatives for Bruce Rauner to appeal to Griffin. What do you see happening there? Is this going to be a closer shave than Pritzker thinks because of the money that Griffin's going to pump into this? Yeah, I mean, I think, as I said, you have to take it seriously. I mean, my basic rule uh, of politics is uh, plan, uh, plan for the worst and hope for the best. Um, and that's what Pritzker has to do, uh, because given the nature of the year and the resources that are massed against him uh, and, um, and some of the scars uh, of having to lead a, a state through uh, the uh, pandemic, um, you know, he has to be he has to be seriously focused here. This is not going to be a walk in the park uh, for him. Now, I will say I, I'm going to be watching with interest the Republican uh, process. And it may be that the the dollars that um, that are being invested by Griffin and others in uh, in in Mayor Irvin will uh, will see him through the primary. I think it's, you know, Republican Party, uh, the Republican uh, Party right now is a really crazy labyrinth to navigate. Uh, and uh, you have a guy uh, in Urban who, uh, I, I guess, as recently as 2020, voted in Democratic primaries um, and uh, is largely unknown to people. But that picture will be filled out positively and negatively. And whether he passes muster with a very, very uh, conservative, um, a very conservative uh, electorate in the Republican primary, very, and, uh, and, and with a Trump orientation, whether he can do that, uh, we'll see. We'll see if all that money helps uh, prevail. But I, I wouldn't say it's a slam, a slam dunk. And we don't really know. We know how he performs in commercials. We don't know how he performs as a candidate because he's been re relatively sheltered from you in the news media and from voters uh, since he announced his candidacy. This has been a made-for-TV candidacy so far. So I think it's uh, it, you know it's going to be a very interesting uh, thing to watch and um, just up and down the ticket because uh, you know. Uh, and we don't know how much money Ken Griffin will uh, um, invest in the rest of the ticket. Uh, but, you know, they put a full ticket together. And uh, so, you know, it could be an interesting year in Illinois. Decades ago, you helped elect Richard M. Daley mayor. Last week, we saw Patrick Daley Thompson, the former mayor's nephew, the grandson of former mayor Richard J. Daley, convicted of bank fraud and tax evasion in a federal courtroom. Did you ever think you would see the day when a politician with the last name of Daley would be convicted of a federal crime? 
Well, his middle name is Daly, but yes, I, I take your point. Look, I think it's tragic uh, for the Daly family. I know, you know, how uh, cautious uh, uh, Mayor Daly was uh, in his personal dealings. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I, I think they grew up in a fishbowl and understood uh, very much uh, the dangers of even the appearance of impropriety and um, you know, it's it's really this is this is a tragic development uh, for them. I, I I feel for the family, you know, and I, you know, I'm bewildered, frankly, as to how uh, Patrick uh, could have been so foolish uh, as to um, as to do the things that he was convicted of, and um, I'm sure it's very agonizing for everyone in that family. Is this the end of the Daily Era? For years, we thought we we even assumed that a member of the younger generation of Dailies and Patrick Daly Thompson seemed to be the natural one would step forward to reclaim the throne that they believe is rightfully theirs, the mayor's office. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, you know what? Uh, I think that is a, a storyline that is good for um, you guys to write about. I never really when when rich daly left uh you know it was never my thought that another daly would serve in that office uh, and i'm not sure anybody in that family believed that what do you mean bill came within an eyelash of making the runoff in 2019 against lori lightfoot or not Johnny serving in that office though no i understand but i mean they that th- that that desire was there just a few years ago yeah i i, I should have said uh, let me be more precise about that. Uh, I never, uh, and like I didn't anticipate Bill running for mayor. Okay, and I and of the younger generation of Dailies, um, uh, I didn't see Patrick Thompson having the capacity to uh, do it, and I didn't see any other Daily, uh, you know, rising to it. And frankly, you know, if your family has been in the limelight, the spotlight for that long, there's a lot of disincentive for that next generation to want to participate uh, in the process. So um, uh, you're right, Bill made it, made it an attempt. Um, and, you know, I have a, a high regard for him, but that was a, obviously um, the timing of that was not, not good for him. And I just don't see that uh, even before this indictment, uh, this conviction, I just don't, you know, I think the daily era is part of history. Uh, an extraordinary part of Chicago history. uh, And I think it's over. Your close friend and basketball buddy, Arnie Duncan, is talking about running for mayor. Would he be a strong candidate and a good mayor? And will you be helping him? Look, I have a maximum high regard for Arnie. Uh, I think he is as committed a public servant as anybody that I know. I think what he's done um, in the last several years, you know, he could have left as many cabinet officers do, he could have left his uh, service in, fe- in the federal government and, and cashed in in a big way. And instead, he's devoted most of his time trying to stop the killing on, uh, you know, on the south and west sides uh, of Chicago. And I so admire him for that. Uh, but, you know, this is a decision he has to make. I know he has a strong sense of uh, duty. Uh, to public service, but uh, you also need to have uh, the desire 
to want to do this job because uh, running for it is, is really hard and serving in it is 24 seven, seven days a week. And it requires you to um, step into the spotlight, which is something that he has never, you know, he is a, he's fundamentally um, a shy person. Uh, and uh, he is a, a, you know, someone who uh, is more, more apt to put others in the spotlight than himself, even on a basketball court, Arnie, is he passes a, a lot. He has a lot of assists. But he, he's a pass first guy. Yeah. Which is great. He's a wonderful guy to have on your team. And he is a great leader by example. Uh, but, you know, he's not a uh, he's not a showboat uh, and he's not a performer. So, you know, all of this may be uh, it may be that it, it, he just doesn't feel it, doesn't want to do it. And uh, he shouldn't allow himself to get talked into it. He should do it if he feels called to it. And if he feels called to it, I think he'll do he could do very well. And, you know, he, he's my he's my friend. So, of course, I would be be rooting, uh, uh, rooting for him. Does he have commitments and support from a business community that's been looking around for someone to challenge Lori Lifet and will not sit this one out? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what discussions that he's had. I'm, I, I honestly haven't talked to Arnie in months, so I don't know what discussions that he's had. Uh, I don't know what discussions he's had. I do know people are concerned, you know, about where we are as a city. Um, and, I, you know, I, I have a, a good relationship with the mayor. I have, you know, no personal um, uh, beef with her at all. But, you know, I, you, you know, the, the issue of public safety is paramount in people's minds right now. Uh, there's obvious, uh, there are obvious reverberations from the virus here as well. Although I think she gets some good marks for how she's handled that. Um, but there's, there's a lot of discontent right now. And um, a lot of, uh, there's a big desire for change out there. And, uh, you know, whatever Arnie Duncan decides to do, um, I imagine there's going to be a very, very competitive race for mayor next year. Yeah. And crime is going to be the issue that and her combative personality and management style, her difficulty in getting along with people. How does Duncan measure up on those fronts when life is trying to portray him as a defunder of the police? Yeah, well, that's, you know, part of politics is uh, that, um, you know, Arnie is a guy who thinks in terms of policy um, and uh, he doesn't think in terms of um, how policy can be distorted and uh, misrepresented. Uh, and, you know, if he gets into the race, he's going to have to push back hard on that because that's that's the nature of the game of politics. Um, I, I do think that one of his selling points would be that he is a he is a uh, consensus builder. He is someone who. Um, who, who knows how to bring people together. That's part of being an athlete. You know, he, he knows how to build teams and that's, that's a useful thing. Let me just say one thing, Fran, just going back for a second, when we talk about the governor's race, it is telling that, you know, um, and Ken Griffin has spoken to it himself. So he obviously has identified this issue. Um, you know, the urban campaign is completely built around the, the, uh, around the issue of crime. So crime, uh, so violence is going to be an issue, not just in the mayor's race, 
but in the governor's race. And the, to the extent that it's an issue in the governor's race, it's it's also going to uh, raise the ante in the mayor's race, which only come, which comes only a few months later. Yeah. Life, it said last year, it's not a gimme that she'll run for re-election. She pointed to all the incumbent mayors in big cities that were not running and calling it quits after one term. More recently, she's trying to raise money. Are you convinced she's running and should she run? Private polling by other politicians in other races show her in the 30s. That's lower than Rahm Emanuel was when he decided to walk away in the unrelenting fallout of his handling of the Laquan McDonald shooting video. Can can Lightfoot be reelected? Should she run? Well, um, you know, anybody can be reelected given the right set of circumstances, including what, you know, the nature of their opponent. Uh, but she has a tough road to hoe. And, you know, I think the first question she's going to have to ask herself is, does she want the job for another four years? Um, she doesn't always seem terribly joyful in her work. Um, and she may just decide, you know, she, she wasn't a politician before she ran, uh, and she may decide that this isn't the life she wants for herself and her family. Um, but if she does decide on, uh, you know, if, if you were talking to her just on the politics, you'd have to advise her that, uh, it's an uphill battle for her. Um, I mean, I think all the polling reflects that and, you know, she, you know, she's a she's a very, very pugnacious person. She's a relentless person. Uh, and she may disregard that and and just take her chances. But it, it, the reality is she's going to she's going to face a tough, a tough battle. And the reason being crime, her personality, what about it makes it so tough for her? I do think the public safety. Look, this is a difficult time to to govern, whether you're a governor, a mayor, uh, anyone who's an executive in this period uh, is in, 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 in difficult straits because people are fundamentally unhappy with uh, the, the period we've come through. And you've had to ask people to do things that, um, that are um, controversial, you know, relative to um, uh, closings and masks wearings and, and, and other uh, restrictions that were necessary to quell the virus. Um, so the combination of that crime, uh, you know, make it difficult for every incumbent. You know, she has made her own life more difficult. Remember, she was elected in part because she was a prosecutor and uh, there was great discontent about corruption. And she uh, came to office really sort of as a loner. Um, I mean, she wasn't part of the political class and that was appealing to people. I think that's one of the reasons she got elected. Uh, but governing, you know, running a city is a different skill set and it requires the ability to build consensus and to work with people, even people uh, with whom you have uh disputes over other issues uh, to get things done. And, um, you know, I think that's been an adjustment for her. She still has the mentality of a loner. She still has the mentality of the prosecutor. And uh, it has at times created difficult relationships for her uh, with people whose help and assistance she needs. 
And that and the crime issue and the angry electorate make it a very difficult, a very uphill battle. If that's your analysis, Fran, is, it, is that what you're saying? I, have, I mean, that's what you see. Always, I've always, I've always um, valued your prodigious, or how, how should I say this, profound uh, <laughs> understanding of Chicago politics. So uh, I'm not going to dispute your analysis. <laughs> okay. All right, my friend. David Axelrod, thank you so much for joining us. And it's always so interesting to talk to you because you're a Renaissance man. You know something about everything and we can talk about the world. And a little Chicago about everything too. and not enough about to, uh, the things, uh, you know, that I that I want to sometimes. But listen, I, I appreciate uh, I appreciate you, uh, as I've told you before, and I hope you'll not cut this from our uh, conversation here. You are a, a Chicago treasure. You, you know, as someone who covered City Hall for several years, uh, I watch in awe the, uh, you know, the amount of uh, really, really high quality uh, copy that you churn out day after day after day that is informed by decades and decades of institutional memory. Anybody who wants to know what's going on in Chicago uh, needs to uh, needs to follow you, and I do religiously. So it's always good to be with you. Okay. Thank you so much, David. And we will see you all next week. 